Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our hearts and minds and community. Father, allow us that great mercy to continue to worship you now through your word. We thank you for the truth of this passage that even now it is you who are at work in us who believe. You work upon our wills. You are mercifully loving in the good works that you produce in us to the glory of your Son. Amen. Okay, so as we look at these two verses, let's just put everything in context. Lost, sin-riddled sinner comes to faith in Jesus. Like every one of us in here who, who now believes in Jesus, that, that's us. So the question is, now what? Almost 40 years ago for me, but now what is the question every day? Or as Francis Schaeffer put it, how shall we then live our lives? Our passage this morning is an answer to that question. Let's go straight to it. Notice the beginning. Verse 12, the word, therefore. So remember the context. The end of chapter 1, Paul has already started to address the Philippian Christians, to address all of us on how to live, to not fear, how to love, humble ourselves, treat the other is more important. And then he put Jesus up as the example, have the same mindset of his humility in his incarnation, in his obedience to death for love's sake to save us. And therefore God highly exalted him. And now the word Therefore, as you go on obeying, go on working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence when I was with you, but now I'm in Rome, in prison, writing to you. Much more now. Much more. They have been obedient because they came to faith in Jesus. They were converted to Him and they're on the pathway 
of obedience to God. And so he gives them the command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Your own. Each of you in the community. Because those who endure to the end will be saved. Or as Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 6, here's the Christian life. For in Christ Jesus, neither, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what counts for everything is only faith working itself out in love. Those who are being saved in Jesus have evidences of it. So Paul tells us, work it out. Persevere. Or as 2 Peter 1.10 puts it, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Did he choose you? Is that you? Yes! And therefore the command is, wake up every day and be diligent to confirm that reality in you. Or the way Paul puts it here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The final day the judgment day is coming. Am I ready? Is my faith in Christ real? Evidenced by obedience. Loving others. Work it out. Fear unbelief. Gaining the ascendancy in your heart and your patterns of life. That's the command, and that's huge. And it's meant to strike all in believers. However, we are not left to our own devices. Paul does not stop there. Notice verse 13. The word for. It's the Greek word gar. Meaning, here's the reason for the command. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Remember what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you, He who began it, brought you to faith. By His mercy that you did not deserve, He who began the good work in you, He will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. God continues that work Powerfully. It's right there. For it is God 
who is working. It's a present tense, ongoing action verb. For it is God who is working day by day in you. Christians are encouraged to press on with confidence all the way to final salvation, knowing that that perseverance itself is a gift of God, and He will complete it. Now, what is it that God is doing in the Christian? The answer is, He's supplying to you the determination to obey, and thus to act, to work, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work, to obey that will, to will and to work refers to what God is causing in the Christian. It is each Christian, every one of us, who is to be willing, choosing, acting, obeying, achieving, precisely because God is effectively at work in us. That's our text. It does not say work in order to acquire salvation. Because God's done His part. Now it's up to you. It doesn't say that. Nor does it say just let go and let God. Don't worry about it. Doesn't say that. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling precisely because it is God who is at work in you. On your will. And thus on your actions. Paul insists that this, this is an incentive for the believer who loves Jesus to press on because we're assured of God's work. And therefore, we're resolved to live and to will for His good pleasure. That right there is throughout the Bible. You believe. You must believe or you cannot be saved. You, you, you obey. You work. Precisely because God is at work in you. That's Bible. That's the Christian life. And this is the perennial problem of the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. So let's just start right here. We are saved by grace alone. 
Not grace plus us. Plus what we do. Grace alone. And what that means is that God is in ultimate control of the entirety of our salvation. He works to cause everything that is included in salvation. The way Paul lays it out in Romans 8, for whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he called, thus they come to faith, and thus they're justified, and thus they'll be sanctified, and thus they will in the future be glorified. He is in sovereign control of all of that, ultimately. That's grace alone. Now, having said that, then, okay, God, total control of, from beginning to end of the salvation of your people. How do you do it? And he does use means. He takes means to produce the end. The glorification. The final Salvation. And as means, he uses commands with promises. Amazing promises. And also with warnings for disobedience. And these means that God uses create in Holy Spirit indwelt persons. Create the motivations that move our wills to repent, to work, to obey as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. God's effectual grace. The grace that whatever he calls for, it will happen. He makes sure of that. Or say it this way. His grace affecting our, our wills. It means God will never force anyone to do anything against their will. Okay, just slow down. Got that? This is also true. Whatever does happen, it is because of God's sovereign will. Or whatever does transpire, including human willing, it is because God has brought that to pass. But he never does that by superseding our wills. He does it by giving the necessary motivations so that we want to freely do, as Christians, freely do what God wants us to do. That reality, 
This reality that we freely do as human beings whatever we want to do at all times, that's what shows our accountability, our responsibility, our culpability before our Creator. There will never, ever be a lawyer arguing for us before God that says, but you made him or her sin. No, we sin or we choose Christ and we walk with him and obey him and sin and repent and everything we do is precisely because we did exactly what we want to do at every given moment. We are utterly responsible, and it shows also for us who believe we are utterly dependent on the grace of God for all things. The human will never chooses or acts contrary to motives that are placed before the mind. It doesn't act ever Apart from what is the strongest inclination at any given moment. There can never be a human act from the will without a prior desire to do that act. Every action is done because it is the most desirable at any given moment based upon the options that are before it, whether they're just two or 222, one of them wins out at that moment. The human will is free to the extent that one is able to decide which decisions in their mind, rightly or wrongly, at that moment think, this will make me most happy at the moment. Or, or this decision, it'll make me less miserable, which is essentially the same thing. This is why Teresa is going to pay money to go to the dentist tomorrow and say, please stick needles in my gum. Shoot me up. Bore away at that tooth to the nerve and then take these files and start to file out the nerve endings in this root canal. No one's forcing her to do this. Apart from her will, she's choosing it. Because at least up to this moment, it seems to be to her the best option for true happiness in that context. This is the same reason people choose on that particular night. They choose sinful sex. It's the same reason the drug addict chooses to shoot heroin into his veins. Or the burglar to burglarize and to steal from others. Of course, they can be totally wrong about it bringing long-term true happiness. Most of the time, human beings are not thinking clearly in her sin. But at that moment, that needle goes in the vein. 
It's because that was the strongest motive right then. And it will continue to be unless that person gets other motives that finally get before the mind and become stronger than that motive that says, this really isn't bringing me the happy life I want. When that happens, you'll get cleaned up. See, this whole dynamic of the human will, so I'm spending time on it. I, I, oh, gosh. This is precisely why the rich young ruler. Gee, Jesus gave him another motive they didn't have prior to that. What must I do for eternal life? Sell everything you have. And then come, follow me. And there was a motive there, but it was not the one that superseded the other. And he walked away. In that sense, freely walked away doing what he wanted to do the most at that given moment. Our human wills cannot act contrary to what we perceive to be. Our best interest is at stake right here. We're always thinking that. That's why we sin. That's why we do stupid things. That's why we yell or scream or let that other person have it. It feels so good that I'm going to be so happy if I get it out. It's true all the time. Just think about it. So picture, here you go. Here's a man. He's in a factory. He doesn't like the work. It's tedious. It's miserable. And he says, I'd rather be at the beach. And so you may say, Joe, everything you said is wrong. See that? He'd rather be at the beach. That's his strongest motive. No, it isn't. The reason I know it's not is because he's not at the beach. He's still at work. There's more to it than goes into that. Because in, in there, the complexity of the human mind, there's something that says the strongest motive is to not be horrifically miserable by losing my job. So I'm at work in a factory instead of at the beach. All right. Now, let me take this a step further. We're also free as human beings to desire, to desire something more than we desire it. That's really good news. Why this, I'm going to get there. It's why this book, Providing Motives, is so important. In other words, we as human beings take steps that are helpful to gaining more holy or desirable motives that we don't presently have. L let me give you an example. When I was in my 40s, Hopefully, as we grow, we get wiser in life. And, but I never had any taste for classical music. Okay. When I'm in my 40s, I'm realizing, hmm, my mind tells me, I study history. Why is it that so much of the great music from Beethoven and Mozart and Bach survives a couple centuries? Maybe I'm missing something. 
So I want to try and see. And so I did. I went out and bought a whole set of CDs of the best of Mozart, the best of Beethoven, the best of Bach, the best of Vivaldi, and made myself listen, tell myself, I'm going to give it time. Because it's not pop music, which just grabs your emotion very quickly. It's more complex. And lo and behold, having done that, I acquired new motives, new tastes, desires for the enjoyment of the great classical pieces. Now, God causes Christians, first and foremost, to be Christians. And he causes Christians, therefore, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he does it by giving us the inclination or motivations to receive Christ, to walk with Christ, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we move and act amazingly in line with his will. God brings sinners to come to Jesus by the means of the gospel, the message, but not alone, along with God the Holy Spirit changing the heart. That is what the new covenant is. God places new desires new motives, new inclinations in our hearts and causes an overpowering desire to love Him. To imperfectly, we'll get there in a moment, obey Him. That's the new covenant. So if you would for a moment turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, 600 years before Jesus God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 to 33, about the new covenant that Jesus will shed his blood to secure. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. The way in which that is done is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As God foretold, the same new covenant by the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and cause you to be careful to obey my rules. Paul says it this way. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who is at work in you so that you would will and work according to His good pleasure. And so in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit comes into the heart with the very presence of the Holy Trinity Himself that gives us a new taste for God, causes us to love God more than anything, and us to delight to do His will. And that ability to do the will of God, that's what's lacking in every person on earth right now who has not been born again. That's what's lacking in all of us naturally born into this world. The unregenerate. In that state of sin, nature cut off from God, or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, Christians before, remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, before He made you alive to God. In that natural state, we are unable to obey God's law because the stronger desires of our heart are always, always in the direction that is against God. And so we act upon the strongest motive. That's the state of spiritual death. But God's Spirit, His call, new birth, changes. It doesn't make us will against our will. That's not what the will is. It changes the options of desires. And He causes the desire to come to Him be stronger than all other competing desires. And that's what we do. Paul knows that. Remember how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1? We go throughout the known Roman Empire preaching Jesus. The Jews, they demand signs. The Greeks, they seek for wisdom. What do we do? We're fools. Preach Christ in a firing squad. It's our Savior. Capital punishment. Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. 
To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. No one will be saved unless God changes the options before their mind to become stronger than any other. And that's what he goes on to say. But to those who are called, that's God's act. But to those who are called, <laughs> to them, Christ is no longer foolish. He's not a stumbling block. He is the power and the wisdom of God. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that, the grace that brought the faith, is not your doing. It's a gift of God so that no one will boast. Now, Go back to Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. If the new covenant is the grace of God changing our hearts in order that we would delight in Him, here's the question. Where do God's commands to us come in? In other words... Should Christians be commanded to work out their salvation when God has said that He is working irresistibly to do this very thing in them? The biblical answer to that question is yes. The answer of our passage is clearly Absolutely he should and does. And the way they work together seems to be obvious. The commands with their promises and the threats for disobedience are the means that God uses in the Christian's life along with the internal working of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. Theoretically, God could have saved us without our having to go through this Christian mortal life of commands. Why do I say theoretically he could have done it? Because Jesus has completed our salvation on the cross. The work of our entire salvation has been completed from beginning to final resurrection and glorification with Christ. He purchased it. We can never earn it or get it in that way. He has done it. And so God could have affected our salvation and brought us straight to heaven without our having to go through this horrific, bloody struggle day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year against sin that dwells within. But evidently, it's not the way he plans salvation. I think... One of the reasons is because through this battle, in this short vapor of a life before eternity comes in, 
He's working something out in each individual life that is a weight of glory to one degree or another. And something about that is that God knew that without the struggle, the pressures of indwelling sin, we would soon forget from what we are being saved from. And therefore God chose to work out our salvation by permitting us from day to day to day to love Him and to be overwhelmed by our own sin's power. In other words, he allows us to experience what Paul experienced in Romans chapter 7. I read, starting with verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh Sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. Okay, get, get Paul here. Why would you have that struggle, Paul? I, I want that. Because of the new covenant. Because of the Spirit indwelling in him. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. And so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but it's not always winning out, is it, is his point. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the Christian life. The Christian life means that we are constantly confronted with commands from our Lord and our Savior, like 
Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body in order that you should obey its passions. Beloved, love one another, for love is from God. And he that does not love does not know God because God is love. We can go on and on, New Testament command after New Testament command. And so because you are a new creature in Christ, here's our life. We acknowledge that yes, I ought to obey that and be more loving. Yes, I ought to obey and not continue in that sin. I ought, I ought. But you also experience times when you cannot obey. So what do you do? Remember my analogy of classical music. Go to the store. They used to have stores with music in them. In other words, desire to desire. You want to want to desire God and to flee from this sin because you are convinced that true happiness is really in God and not in this desire that is gaining dominance in your mind. But the Romans 7 experience means that you don't have the sufficient motivation before you to seek God with all your heart. And therefore the oughts are not enough. But the commands, they come with promises and they come with warnings for disobedience. And we need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God, the commands, the promises, and the warnings before us. So I want you to turn over to Romans for a second. Chapter 8. I show as we're walking down the road of our Christian lives, you read Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, now. Every Christian has experienced reading a verse like that, and it has zero impact. Because our heart is so far at that moment from the truth. This promise here in Romans 8.13, it, it produces desire to obey it only 
to the extent we agree with it first. That you agree with the promise of life. That you agree with the truth of the threat of death. But none of us will agree that life and death are really and truly at stake. Unless we're given supernatural help by the Spirit. Left to ourselves, we will twist this to mean something it doesn't mean. We will take what we think is true theologically and throw it onto that text so that that text is so watered down its impact to produce the motivation is gone. But let's just say then, here we are, man, I'm weak. Intellectually, I know that this verse is true. I know Romans 8 verse 13 is true, but, but I can't feel it. I can't feel the truth enough to have it be the strongest motivation to resist and to turn from this sin. And so the question is this at that point. Do you want to have that? Motivation. Do you want to feel it? Then go to the store and buy the CDs of Beethoven and Bach and Mozart. Meaning set aside everything else so that you can seek the enabling of God to feel these promises, these threats, to be struck with the truth. Now even that movement you're not even at the store yet. You haven't even listened to Bach. Or you haven't even opened the Bible yet, but you walk into the other room prayerfully to get it. Obviously, that itself is proof that God is at work in you. Both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. And so when one confronts the truth of his own rebellion when we see our hearts like that against God I don't want that help me love you that prayer itself is evidence God is at work in you because by yourself you would never face the truth of your sin hardness of heart at that moment. So you repent and you trust his promise. And it's all owing to the sovereign grace of God constantly working in you. That's the Christian life. Let me just close by saying this. Here's the point. There is no contradiction in Paul saying, Christian, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling precisely because it is God who is at work in you, on your will, and thus on your obedience working. What is pleasing to him
It's not a contradiction because God, through the means of the grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit, along with the commands of God to you, with their promises, that's Him constantly working on the Christian's will, causing us to face up honestly to what will really happen to us if we really don't belong to Him and continue to confirm it by spitting in His face. The opposite of faith, in love for God. But He convinces us again and again those promises are so good. How wonderful. Thank God I'm not that way. Oh, fear and trembling because what would it mean if I don't love Him? What would it mean if I'm fake? And that grace of fear and trembling brings about again the promise is real. The peace of the Spirit. Fear turns to joy again and again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the answer to the question, is it God or, or is it us? Or is it both God and us together who accomplish the work of our salvation? The answer is clear. It is God alone. Alone. Who initiates and completes our salvation. But do we use our own human wills? Absolutely. Do we choose? Do we obey? Yes. Do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling by the means of the Word of God? Yes, yes, yes. But only because God is at work in us, constantly giving us the heart, the desires, and the motives by the work of the indwelling Holy. Let's go to Him in prayer and song. Let our thanksgiving to Him really be felt. Father, thank You for such a glorious gift. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the truth that if You don't go away, You won't send the Holy Spirit in the way that we need Him, but You did go away to the cross and to death and to the resurrection and to the ascension, and You have poured out Your Spirit, and thus bringing many sons and daughters to glory forever. We thank You. Amen.